0: Before we pray and uh, come to the lecture of this hour, brethren, I do want to say a few words that, in a very real sense, are an addendum or a PS to uh, one of the previous lectures. And then we'll pray and move into the material for this hour. In dealing with the subject of the necessity for a gift of sanctified utterance, I made reference as the fourth aspect of such a gift of utterance, this matter of the unction of the Holy Spirit as indispensable to a sanctified gift of utterance. And because of the constraints of the clock, I was unable to read several quotes. And as I was uh, going over the lectures yesterday after I went home and putting the notes in their proper order and filing them away, I felt it would be helpful to us in a very real sense as eliciting a a fresh disposition of prayerfulness in asking God's blessing on the lectures today uh, to read two of those quotes that I had to omit. And the first is from God's servant Charles Spurgeon who in his lectures to his students in the chapter on the Holy Spirit in connection with our ministry, wrote as follows. To us as ministers, the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential. Without Him, our office is a mere name. We claim no priesthood over and above that which belongs to every child of God But we are the successors of those who in olden times were moved of God to declare his word, to testify against transgression, and to lead his cause. Unless we have by the spirit of the prophets resting upon us, the mantle which we wear is nothing but a rough garment to deceive. We ought to be driven forth with abhorrence from the society of honest men for daring to speak in the name of the Lord if the Spirit of God rests not upon us. We believe ourselves to be spokesmen for Jesus Christ, appointed to continue his witness upon earth. But upon him and his testimony, the Spirit of God always rested. And if it does not rest upon us, we are evidently not sent forth into the world as he was. At Pentecost, the commencement of the great work of converting the world was with flaming tongues and a rushing mighty wind, symbols of the presence of the Spirit. If, therefore, we think to succeed without the Spirit, we are not after the Pentecostal order." If we have not the spirit which Jesus promised, we cannot perform the commission which Jesus gave. And then from John Owen, page 454, The Duty of a Pastor, I believe it's volume 4, authority is required. And what is authority in a preaching ministry? It is a consequent of unction and not of office The scribes had an outward call to teach in the church, but they had no unction, no anointing, that could evidence that they had the Holy Ghost in his gifts and graces. Christ had no outward call, but he had an unction. He had a full unction of the Holy Ghost in his gifts and graces for the preaching of the gospel. Hereon there was a controversy about his authority, the scribes say to him in mark 11:28 by what authority do you do these things and who gave you this authority the holy ghost determines the matter matthew 7:29 he preached as one having authority and not as the scribes they had the authority of office but not of unction christ only had that and preaching in the demonstration of the spirit which men quarrel so much about, is nothing less than the evidence in preaching of unction in the communication of gifts and grace unto them for the discharge of their office. For it is a vain thing for men to assume and personate authority so much evidence as they have of unction from God in gifts and grace, So much authority they have and no more in preaching. And let everyone then keep within his bounds. Non-charismatic, sane, respected, orthodox, reformed theologians who understood and were emphatic concerning this necessity of the unction of the Spirit. Well, brethren, I trust believing that. Let's cry to God that that unction may rest upon me as I seek to lecture and convey this material and upon us all as the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of the things of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are convicted as we read the words of your sagacious servants of a bygone day. And we would confess with shame the times we have sallied forth and dared to enter our pulpits, enter our studies in a counseling session, go to the bedside of a suffering saint, enter the home for pastoral interaction, and have not consciously and deliberately cried to you for fresh anointings of the Holy Spirit, our Father, our We acknowledge it has been right for you to curse our creature confidence with barrenness and fruitlessness. And we pray that you would forgive us of this peculiar ministerial sin and teach us more and more what it is consciously to look to you for fresh supplies of the Holy Spirit in every situation in which we would seek to minister in your name. We pray that we may not only be full of the Spirit so that those graces of love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness and self-control be manifested in us. But, O Lord, we pray for the unction of the Holy Spirit to rest upon us that it may be said of us as was said of Peter Peter, full of the Spirit, opened his mouth and said, O God, we pray that even in this hour you would come with fresh unction upon your servant. We pray that the Spirit will be present with these, my brethren, as together we wrestle with vital matters relative to this crucial issue of what does indeed constitute a biblical and an orderly call to the pastoral office hear us and help us and answer the cry of our hearts we plead through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 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 Now perhaps no other subject is more foundational or more significant to a man's ministry than that which we have been addressing in these days, namely the call of a man of God To the pastoral office. Beginning with some foundational principles which ought always to set the boundaries of our thinking with respect to this subject, I then sought to identify some of the major errors which are often present when people are wrestling with this subject and then. I then identified seven unbiblical and unrighteous reasons why some men aspire to the office or assume that they ought to be in and remain in the pastoral office. Having laid this groundwork, the majority of our time has been spent in stating, demonstrating, and applying the four things which are indeed the nuts and bolts the essential substance of a biblical and orderly call to the pastoral office. I suggested that the most streamlined way to express these four things is by the use of the four words, aspiration or ambition, qualification, confirmation, and recognition. The majority of our time thus far has been spent in addressing the first two of these heads under a more fulsome verbal form. Number one, the aspiration I've identified with these words, an enlightened and sanctified desire for the work of the pastoral office, the entirety of that work. Number two, qualification, a proven fitness for the work of the pastoral office, and that in terms of three major categories, spiritual character spiritual experience, and spiritual gifts. And now we come in this hour to take up the third of those four vital elements that constitute a biblical and an orderly call to the pastoral office. And I'm expressing it this way, an adequate external confirmation of fitness for the work of the pastoral office an adequate external confirmation of fitness for the work of the pastoral office. And at the very outset, I want to state an axiom and then seek to open up and demonstrate the scriptural roots of that axiom. And the axiom is this. While sober self-assessment of our desires, graces, and gifts is a personal responsibility which no man can righteously evade. An external confirmation of that assessment by a cross-section of spiritually-minded people is essential to a valid call to the pastoral office. And since you have that in your notes, I feel no need to repeat it. Now, what proof do I offer for that axiom, what scriptural precepts, precedents, and principles do I set forth, demonstrating that that axiom grows out of our Bibles? Well, we have emphasized again and again from passages such as romans twelve three and though we 've not emphasized the second passage as much, it certainly warrants the same perspective first peter four ten and eleven. That underscore the responsibility of sober self-assessment. Paul says, I say to every man among you, every man has a moral righteous obligation to self-assessment. And then first Peter four ten and eleven. Peter assumes that none are brought into the body of Christ, whom Christ does not gift in some way for mutual body service, and the assumption is that if we're to exercise whatever gift has been given, we must identify that gift in part by sober self-assessment. And God has not left us at the mercy of our own resources. According to 1 John 2 27, He has given His Spirit to everyone in the body. Every member of the New Covenant community, in that sense, is a charismatic member. And God has given us a standard with respect to this whole matter of whether or not the head of the church has given us the gifts, plural that indicate he is framing us to be a gift singular to his church. However, self-assessment alone is neither safe nor biblical. We could begin just with those two passages that call us to sober self-assessment. What is the context of the sober self-assessment mandated in Romans 12 and verse 3? It is the individual planted within the body. There is one body but diversity of gifts. And it is in the assumed context of the life, ministry, discernment, assessment of the body that the individual engages in his self-assessment. And likewise with the letter uh, to the suffering saints in Asia Minor, Pontus, Cappadocia, etc. It is not assumed that there are individuals who get up one morning with no vital attachment to the church and they get a copy of Peter's letter in order to have their devotions. Now for someone like myself who came out of a background with no ecclesiology, I shall never forget the day it dawned on me That these documents that I was reading continually in my devotions were not written to me as an individual believer. For the most part, they were written to churches, several of them written to individuals, but even the individuals who receive a letter Timothy, Titus, Philemon the context in which they receive the letter and carry out its directives is the church. And I mean, it was like, and it was a spiritual Copernican revolution suddenly I found there was something that was the center of the universe of God's communication in the New Covenant documents other than the individual. That at the center was the church and the individual as he is embedded in and deeply involved in the life and ministry of the church. And Breckenridge, in a masterful treatise on uh, this whole matter of the Christian ministry and The Christian pastor writes as follows, It cannot be denied that we are liable to be deceived in this matter, that is, of the call to the ministry, as well as in that of our personal interest in Christ, and indeed in every other which concerns our inward state and exercises, and that we are so, "...is precisely one chief reason why the testimony of our conscience cannot be sufficient evidence to others... ...and why it needs to be enforced even to ourselves by other and concurring proofs. The human heart is not only desperately wicked, but it is deceitful above all things. And the most difficult part of knowledge is to know ourselves... And sin itself is not only infinitely deceitful, but it is also most deceivable. And therefore, to the extent that it reigns in us, it subjects us to the risk of being deceived and of deceiving ourselves. What I have before said plainly shows that the danger of being deceived by Others into a conviction that we ought to preach the gospel is by no means imaginary. And all who have endeavored to fathom the wiles of Satan and who have wrestled earnestly with the plague of their own hearts well know that the danger of self delusion is real and it is constant. And then he goes on to underscore why it is that we need that external confirmation of any internal, personal self-assessment that has led us to the persuasion that we ought to pursue or to remain in the pastoral office. It is clear from the Scriptures that earned credibility by a cross-section of spiritually minded people is crucial. Now, by a cross-section... I mean presently recognized leaders in the church, whatever our ecclesiastical framework may be, and also non-office bearers of proven discernment and wisdom. There is not necessarily the richest deposit of wisdom and discernment in the eldership alone or in the presbytery alone or in a called council of Baptist or independent pastors alone, whatever the ecclesiastical framework may be, sometimes a little old, half blind, half deaf, wise and shriveled up old lady may have more spiritual discernment about a man's fitness for the ministry than five or six preachers together who have some personal interest in encouraging Johnny to become a reverend. It's true, brethren, and we must recognize that fact. Now, what scriptures point in the direction of the necessity of this external, objective validation of our personal, subjective, individual self-assessment? Well, let's look at several texts. 2 Timothy two. 2. When Timothy picks up Paul's letter and reads... My son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 2. And the things that you have heard of me and learned of me among many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Now who makes the final assessment that a man is a faithful man? Does Timothy stand up in the church at Ephesus or church as however we may view the ecclesiastical structure in which Timothy ministered, and say, now I have a letter from the apostle who tells me I am warranted and I have a mandate of apostolic authority to commit to faithful men the apostolic body of truth with a view that you may teach others also, therefore, All of you who assess yourselves to be faithful and able to teach, show up next Saturday morning and I'm going to commit to you the apostolic tradition. Nonsense. Timothy was responsible to make an assessment. Is this a trustworthy man who will be able? That is, are there some seedling gifts that are essential to A competent teacher both in graces of character and the gifts essential to be an able teacher. The assessment of the men in Ephesus that they were faithful men who would be able to teach was not enough. There was the external validation of Timothy himself. And this was true even in Timothy's case. So he was equipped to do this. How did Timothy come into the orbit of his tremendous sphere of influence as Paul's spiritual son, as Paul's, uh, the one whom Paul tutored, and concerning whom he says in Philippians, I have no man like-minded. They all seek their own things, not the things of Christ. How many red necks and faces were there when that letter began to be distributed? and the young reverence of whom Paul is speaking, I have no man like-minded. He didn't say they were apostates and wicked and lechers and and swindlers, but they had not died to self-interest to the same extent that Timothy did. He is the man, he says, who will naturally care for your state. But how did Timothy come into that sphere of association with the apostle? Well, we turn to Acts 16 and we get the answer. And he, Paul, verse 1, came also to Derby and to Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewess that believed, but his father was a Greek. The same was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him. Now what do you have here? You have Paul's assessment But it's obvious when Luke records these words that Paul did not trust even his own assessment. He took time to go around to the believers in these two places where in some way Timothy had had more extensive interaction and he found that he was well reported of by the brethren. And the Holy Ghost has recorded this. And so Paul has him to become his companion. However, however, Paul can write to Timothy and say, stir up the gift of God which is in you with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery, a group of recognized, discerning leaders then he can say, the gift that is in you with the laying on of my hands. Now, whether that was one event where Paul joined with the presbyters, it's irrelevant to the point. The point is that there was this external validation by many of the rank and file of God's people and by the official leaders of God's people all the way up to an apostle. Then and only then is Timothy set apart, not for his pastoral office, but for that unique function, whether he is classic evangelist, whether he is apostolic representative. Again, that's a moot point, but the principles are very clear with respect to Timothy's entrance upon an official function in Christ's church. He was not sitting home, praying, having his devotions, assessing his fitness. The people of God Alone, But the people of God had their input all the way up to the evaluation of the apostle himself. And then, of course, in Acts chapter 15, you have uh, this situation uh, with respect to Barnabas and Paul and whether or not they ought to take John Mark with them on this second missionary journey. Verse 37, Barnabas was minded to take with them John also, who was called Mark. But Paul thought not good to take with him the one who withdrew from them from Paphilia and went not with them to the work. Went not with them to the work. And there arose a sharp contention. They had a verbal fuss over this. It doesn't mean they were cussing at one another, had jugular veins standing out on the neck and shaking their fists, but a sharp contention is more than a minor disagreement in which they sat there sipping Coke and saying, well, we don't quite see eye to eye on this, but let's just kind of talk it through. No, there was sharp contention, so that they parted asunder, one from the other, these two companions in labor who loved and respected one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed unto Cyprus, and I think it's significant, and Paul chose Silas and went forth, being commended by the brethren. The church again affirms its identity with Paul and with Silas. And it is silent as to whether or not the church had its heart and its approbation go with Barnabas and John Mark. Now you've got to kind of exegete the white spaces to build any strong argument. But again, the Holy Spirit has recorded that it was Paul and Silas... Was it that the church shared in Paul's reservation? It apparently did. John Mark had gained approbation, was with them in that first journey. He thinked out He caved in, he showed a weakness of character, and apparently the apostle's disposition is until he proves over time he will not have my approbation and bless God, over time he did. And he can say, bring John Mark with you. He is profitable for the ministry. And John Mark regained the approbation of the apostle and we can assume indirectly of the rank and file of God's people. These passages, brethren, surely point in this direction of the necessity of the external validation of our internal personal self-assessment. And then one of the key texts, and I have used it with men who were a bit restive and even resentful about thinking, look, I know God's called me and I have this gift and this and this, and they're unwilling to to wait for the approbation and the encouragement of the external call. Proverbs 18 and verse 1. He that separates himself seeks his own desire and rages or quarrels against all sound wisdom. The ESV renders it. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire and he breaks out against All sound judgment. And I've put in your notes uh, the exegesis and the nuances of the Hebrew words in this particular text, as you find it in Kyle and Dalish. And let me just underscore several comments. He gnashes his teeth, literally. He shows how much the proverb is opposed to this interpretation. The Hebrew word denotes one who willingly and indeed obstinately withdraws himself. The effort of the separatist, the one who withdraws himself, goes out after pleasure. The enjoyment and realization of such seeks his own desire. Instead of seeking to conform himself to the law and ordinance of the community, he seeks to carry out a separate view and to accomplish some darling plan. Thus putting subjectivity, page 2, subjectivity in the room of the commonweal, he shows his teeth, places himself in fanatical opposition against all that is useful and profitable in the principles and aims, the praxis of the community from which he separates himself. The figure is true to nature, the polemic of the schismatic and the sectary against the existing state of things is for the most part measureless and hostile. And then in the commentary, there's an assumption that verse 2 of Proverbs 18 follows on from that thought and you can read the comments at your leisure. But here is the picture of the man who says, well, I am so certain I am called. I don't care anything about whether or not others validate that self-assessment and the scripture says it's a man who having separated himself evidences that he's seeking his own desire and is raging against all sound wisdom and he's flying in the face of those generic instructions and comments of Proverbs 11:14 about safety in the multitude of counselors Proverbs 15:22 and twenty four six, and here again, Owen speaks so perceptive.ly When he writes in volume sixteen, page seventy three, and this may at present suffice as unto the call of meet or suitable persons to the pastoral office, and consequently, any other office in the church. The things following are essentially necessary unto it. Notice not. Desirable in an ideal setting, but essentially necessary unto it. So as that authority and right to feed and rule in the church in the name of Christ, as an officer of his house, may be given unto any anyone thereby by virtue of his law and the charter granted by him unto the church itself. The first is that antecedently unto any actings of the church towards such a person with respect unto office, he be furnished by the Lord Christ himself with graces and gifts and abilities for the discharge of the office whereunto he is to be called. You see, Owen just comes down on this again and again and again and again where Christ is forming a gift To the church, it will be evident by the gifts he has given to the one who will eventually be his gift to the church. Where this is wholly lacking, it is not in the power of any church under heaven by virtue of any outward order or act to communicate pastoral or ministerial power unto any person whatever. But alas, churches do it! And Owen would say they simply go through a formal exercise, but there will be no authority, there will be no unction, there will be no validation that this man is indeed a gift of Christ. Secondly, There is to be an exploration or trial of those gifts and abilities as unto their accommodation, unto the edification of that church, whereunto any person is to be ordained as a pastor or minister. But although the right of judging herein doth belong unto and reside in the church itself... For who else is able to judge for them or is entrusted to do so? Good two questions. Yet it is their wisdom and duty to desire the assistance and guidance of those who are approved in the discharge of their office in other churches. You see, Owen was an independent, lowercase i. This is an independent church, but lowercase i. We have deep, meaningful active relationship to other churches and to their office bearers. I've had many a Presbyterian say to me, oh, Al, you've got real Presbyterianism that really works. We've got the name and the framework, but not the substance of it. I've had many of my Presbyterian brethren say that. Pastors who are my mentors and are my counselors and Pastors to whom I am mentor and counselor. And what a delight it is in this matter, for example, of assessing whether or not a man is a Timothy, well reported of among the churches. To have an aspirant, go to some of our sister churches and then ask the frank input of the pastors and elders of that church. And if I'm there subsequently ministering, to put my ear to the ground and listen to the shriveled up, half blind, half deaf old ladies who've had a lot of reverence come and go in their lifetime, and they know when the oil is on a man's forehead. And they may say in their squeaky voice, well, he doesn't have the... But I'll tell you one thing, Pastor Martin, the Holy Spirit is on that young man. He breathes something of Christ-likeness, and there is an authority and a penetration in his preaching. I think God may be making him into a pastor. And so... We have the witness of these other men. Now, by application, brethren, let me say this. In a day of crass individualism and existential subjectivism, to insist on the quality control of this external validation is to go against the whole prevailing mood of the hour. Add to this the wrong use of the principles operative In the recorded examples of men called to an extraordinary office in an extraordinary way, such as prophet or apostle, and the problem is compounded. Crass individualism is part of the zeitgeist of present society in and out of the church. Added to that is skewed thinking about how God calls men, taking the paradigm of prophet and of apostle, of king, rather than of elder, presbyteros, overseer, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. And the atmosphere is even more compounded away from the norms of the Scripture. And we do well to listen to Dr. Edmund Clowney, who in his excellent little book, Called to the Ministry writes as follows, and here I'm just going to give specimen reading of the two pages that you have in your possession. Your church's calling, notice that's letter B. As he opens up this subject, he seeks to address how a man may biblically and in a balanced way make self-assessment of his calling from the Lord, the internal call, but then he comes to the external call your church's calling. Nothing can concern you more personally and intimately than your own calling of Christ. He has called you by name, not by number or classification, for no selective service draft is so selective as Christ. Your own new name is written on that white stone in his hand. He knows it, In one day he will show it to you alone, Revelation 2, 17. Can your calling then, that is, to the ministry, be the business of anyone else? When you are assured of the Lord's call, doesn't that settle the matter? Why not present yourself to the church of your choice and inform the congregation, the Lord has called you to be their pastor? And then he goes on to demonstrate, from the life even of the Apostle Paul, called into grace by a direct revelatory act of the ascended and glorified Christ, commissioned in the midst of that calling out of darkness into light. He is told that he is going to be a mouthpiece and a messenger of this exalted and glorified Christ. And yet, he comes to Jerusalem. And what's the first thing he attempts to do? He attempts to become a church member. People say, no way, Jose, we heard about you. You ain't getting in this church. You're a fifth columnist. You want to get in here, get to know all our names, and then we'll end up being on the list of those that you're going to arrest and put into prison. Barnabas comes along and says, Hey, folks, nothing to be worried about. He's the real deal. And Barnabas speaks on his behalf, and Paul becomes a church member at Jerusalem, and then the scripture says he was with them going in and out preaching boldly. He had as his base the Jerusalem church. Who needs the church? Jesus spoke to me from heaven. So what? You need the church. Then in a subsequent visit to Jerusalem, he wants everyone to know that that gospel that he preaches among the Gentiles is the same gospel that Peter and James and the other Jerusalem apostles are preaching among the Jews. And he says, they gave to me the right hand of fellowship, that I should go to the Gentiles, even as God had called them to the Jews, So Clowney opens up, you see, even with these eminent servants of God, with an extraordinary office, there is this sensitivity to the external call by discerning previously recognized leaders in Christ's church. And then on page 88, he says this, Christ's calling draws us to our brethren as well as to our saviour. We are to exercise our calling in the fellowship of the church and must find it there too. Take the trowel and basin and discover your calling at your brother's feet. Go with him to visit the prisoner and find your calling at his side. You may be convinced of your calling to the ministry long before others mark your gifts, but if you are diligent in the fellowship of the gospel, you're profiting will appear to all. Christ's calling will be acknowledged by Christ church. And then the last sentence of that paragraph, what is important is that your own awareness of Christ's gifts should be joined with the perception of the church. And I believe that each of you men who is here, particularly you younger men, You come out of the crucible of deep involvement in and commitment to your local churches. But these lectures may eventually get into the hands and before the eyes and ears of men who are in seminaries who aren't even members of a church, let alone deeply embedded in the life of the church and looking to God that through that church there would be a validation And I say to any such men listening to these lectures, you've got the cart before the horse. Find a place where you can become a loyal, submissive member of the church. A place with discerning leaders and spirit-indwelt, discerning people. A real church, not a church in name. Not a perfect church, but a real church. A healthy church. A church where people are radical biblicists when it comes to the matter of a call to the ministry. Radical biblicism. And you say, look, I want the standard of the word of God to be applied to me as a faceless man. I don't care how many of you love me and think I'm a nice guy. That's irrelevant. The issue is, is Christ forming me to be a gift to his church. First Timothy 3, Titus 1, Acts 20, 1 Peter chapter 5. And then the deduction from a host of other passages. The pattern of Jesus as the true and the great shepherd of his people. I want you to look at the portrait of what God says one of his gifts will look like. And continually compare me to the portrait. And if it doesn't match, have the spiritual integrity to tell me that I may find what sphere of labor, of honorable employment, by which I can provide for myself, my family, glorify God, support the work of the church, and find my sphere of usefulness in the body of Christ. Brethren, this matter of the validation of the people of God is essential to a biblical and orderly Call to the ministry. Now, for those of you who are being nurtured in a well ordered church, this external confirmation of fitness will generally come naturally and gradually. But as in all others of experiential or experimental divinity, there are times when this confirmation may come rather dramatically. Over a short period of time. And so it's irrelevant in terms of time and the details of the manner. But don't run into any assumption of a pastoral office if you're back further along the line in terms of should I even pursue acquiring those tools that generally are necessary and vital to make a man an able teacher and preacher and a safe guide. Wait for the confirmation of discerning people, primarily and hopefully your own spiritual overseers and a cross-section of spiritually-minded, discerning, matured saints of the Lord. And then, brethren, I say to you, my brethren in the ministry, may God use our time together in these days to bring us to the place where without being radical reformers, we're not going to be like the lunatic fringe in the Reformation that went in with uh, sticks and rods and smashed the icons and the idols in the churches and caused Luther to pray, oh, God, save me not only from my enemies but from my friends. (laughs) But, but, to be committed in heart, to seek to dismantle this wretched system in which a man's subjective sense of call, based upon his own personal assessment alone, puts him in the pipeline to be a reverend, and few people along the way have the spiritual conviction and fortitude to say, thus far, no further." young man, middle-aged man, old man, where did you get the notion you can simply sit, look in the mirror and come away saying, Christ is fashioning me into a gift to his church and challenge this whole wretched system. You say, well, we'll have fewer men. Well, that's been addressed in a lovely footnote that somewhere along the line is in your notes in the work of Bridges that we would be far better with fewer biblically competent and qualified men than a host of incompetent men whom Christ has never fashioned and never given to his church. Well, that's all I want to say at this juncture concerning this third dimension of what constitutes a biblical and orderly call to the pastoral office. It is this external confirmation coming in the context of the church from spiritually mature men and women that we may have that confidence that we are not running unsent. Let's pray together. Our Father, again, we're so thankful that we have your word as a lamp to our feet and a light to our pathway, and we would... With the psalmist, thank you that moreover by them, by your precepts, your servants are warned, and in the keeping of them there is great reward. O Lord, we pray that you would write upon all of our hearts these vital issues with which we have wrestled in this hour, and we ask that more and more our thinking and our practice And our personal assessment and judgments and decisions will be hammered out upon the anvil of your word. And that you by your spirit will equip us then to run in the way of your commandments. Hear our prayers for Jesus' sake in the good of his church. Amen.